Hello and welcome to series two of The Rebuilders. I'm your host Sarah and we are still on a mission to discover what it takes to come back after a setback. In each episode we speak to someone who has dug deep to rebuild an aspect of their life or work and whose story provides inspiration and ideas to tackle obstacles in our own paths. I'm also excited to share that The Rebuilders book is due out soon on the 4th of June. It's inspired by the learnings from the series and the book is a guide to building resilience and turning obstacles into opportunities in life and work. We feature some amazing interviewees from places like Google, the NHS, the World Economic Forum, and we share learnings and practical tools that anyone can pick up and use. So if you're interested in pre-ordering, then look for The Rebuilders on Amazon or anywhere else that books are sold. Plus, I've popped a link in the show notes for those who'd like to know a little more. In the last episode, I spoke to Craig Fenton from Google about why failure and experimentation are vital components in business and innovation. This week, we're staying in the world of business as we speak to marketeer Abby Comber about surviving through crisis and turmoil in the workplace. Abby has over 25 years experience in the marketing industry and is currently the chief marketing officer at Signpost Diagnostics. She's some very sage reflections for us on surviving at work when surrounded by uncertainty and change. Previously, Abby was the CMO at Debenhams at the start of the pandemic, one of the most turbulent times ever on the British high street, after which Debenhams sadly closed all of its stores, but survives online after it sailed to Boohoo. We kick off talking about March 2020, when Abby was only six weeks into her new job at Debenhams and facing a roller coaster ride. I went in eyes wide open to what Debenhams was at the time, and I went in to help turn it around with a real customer view, not being a specialist in retail or fashion or beauty. And within six weeks, I had managed to get complete buy-in for the turnaround plan for the brand with a really, really tight team at the top. There's only six people on the exec, having done lots of cost-cutting up to that point to get themselves sharp and ready to do this. And then we were ready to go. We thought that the revenues might wobble with this murmur of this thing coming across from China. And that was it. And the rest is really history because we trialed working from home before the lockdown in March. And then it was a completely different job to do than the one I ever intended. But I can hand on heart say that it was one of the most satisfying professional years of my life because of the culture, the challenge the things I learned and knowing coming out the other side of a sale that I wouldn't look back and not do it again. I would love to have been able to have saved so many of those jobs. And it was tough, really tough emotionally as well. But I loved every minute of it. You must have got 20 years of experience in a year. Yeah. So what are the things that stick out most sharply for you as you were going through really riding as a leader waves of change and uncertainty with this team that you're bringing along with you? For me, I think I had to land who I wanted to be with my team really quickly. So six weeks in, I was going to be the person who's going to transform it all. Eight weeks in, I was going to be the person who worked with them on Zoom and had 120 people reporting into me, trying to keep everything going online when their stores started to close. That was very tough for everyone. So I think the things I remember most about the whole period were keeping it tight, but also keeping in your swim lane of what you needed to do and doing it brilliantly well. We had a really small exec team. 
and we all knew what we had to do individually. We all trusted each other implicitly to get on and do that job. And the job changed from week to week. One week it was moved to online. The next week it was I had to start an entire call center because our call center supplier let us down when COVID hit. And I was working with IT to get laptops out to 100 people from closed stores that otherwise would have been made redundant and setting up a contact center for people whose orders may not have arrived. You knew what you needed to do and you had to crack on with it and trust everybody else to do their job to their best ability. For me, it was communication to my team and keep them connected with everything that was happening because it was so uncertain and it changed every week. I had entire department meetings on teams twice a week. There's two elements as a leader, isn't there? There's managing yourself and your energy and even finding what that swim lane is half the time, Mm -hmm. let alone Mm -hmm. kind of how you show up in it. And then it's communicating or transmitting to your team as much security and transparency as you can. And I certainly found running a business during COVID, which was nowhere near as stressful as yours, that you don't always necessarily feel aligned. Sometimes in yourself as a leader, there's still a lot being decided within the exec team, but you still have to show up for your team and communicate and help them feel as much as possible that things are as certain as they can be. So how did you manage yourself during that period of time? One thing I actually did outside of work in the January was I committed to raising some money for pancreatic cancer care and research, which is what my father died of. So every opportunity I got, I would do my one-to-ones walking because it was all about doing a hundred miles walk. I would do my morning calls doing that and I would get out and I would show them that it was really important to get outside, still be in the fresh air, not work off an ironing board at the end of the bed in your spare room. It didn't matter if the cat was on your keyboard. We've all had those experiences. But, you know, you use the phrase showing up for your team. I made myself ridiculously accessible to anybody. And actually, only two people beyond my direct team ever came to me direct with real problems in their life that had been caused by COVID and what was happening to them. Everything else was very open in discussion around the table or the virtual table as it was. So being present in a virtual way, publishing my personal mobile telephone number at the end of every Teams conversation I had with my team. So it wasn't within working hours. It didn't have to be on Teams. It could be personal. It could be private. Just knowing that there's somebody there for them and it didn't matter what the question was, that I'd answer the phone. I think sometimes there was a security of just knowing that it was there, that little kind of safety net for them. How did you find it with a team that you didn't know well? You said you were there for six weeks and then you were all virtual. And actually, many leaders or people working in teams, what we were able to fall back on was the fact that we knew the teams, we knew what motivated people, we knew who might go quiet and to keep an eye out for them. We knew the business, we knew the bumps that were coming in the road. So how did it work onboarding yourself and introducing yourself as well as rebuilding the car at the same time? It's going to sound ridiculous, but I think it probably was easier to do it this way because I made sure that we all had team meetings, the entire team, twice a week. We had a cameras on policy because that was my way of looking out who was in the chat, people turning their cameras off, were they feeling down that day? So you got to understand who were the more reserved characters, who were the more flamboyant characters, but then you got to see when those characters changed and then you would check in with them offline. And that just accelerated my learning of who they are, what they do, 
and a bit more about them because I turned up to the board meetings in shorts and flip-flops. They knew everything about me. They knew that early in the morning I'd be sat at the back of the room because if I had the window open, the sun burned my toes. I knew about their kids. I'm a real believer that you bring your whole self to work. For me, if you have your work in balance, that is part of a good life and it fulfills you. I think that making that something that everybody could relate to, we were totally accepting of everybody's circumstances and the fact that we might all deal with it in a different way meant that we had very open and honest conversations, not always about work. Obviously, a lot changed during that time. As you say, you pivoted to online and you opened a call centre. There was a big focus on CRM. I've heard you talk before about the fact that you needed to switch to more leisure wear and that children's uniforms weren't selling because they weren't in school, but kids are still growing. So you need kids clothes. You were obviously making all those changes. And at some point, it became clear that this business, which was a couple of hundred years old, wouldn't survive in the same way. And I have to say, this was long before your tenure. It had been challenged for a long time. The property had been too large. I think it went into administration twice. At what point did the business realise that was going to be the case? And how did that feel? Because we do often talk to people for whom rebuilding means something ending and something else beginning, and it's a pivotal moment. So what did that feel like within the business when that moment dawned? I suppose there were a couple of different stages because as the sale was going through, everybody genuinely believed that with a much smaller estate than we had at the time, we could save not only the brand, but the bricks and mortar and therefore some of the job. This was a sale to Boohoo and they really wanted that brand, right? And there was a hope, was there, that some stores, some bricks and mortar would remain? When we went into administration, the sale of the company was not only the brand, it was the bricks and the mortar and the stock and everything. That then didn't happen and Boohoo only bought the brand. So as we went through the journey of opening and closing according to the government legislation, pivoting to online, creating opportunities for people that wore different clothing at the same time, We were thinking, yes, we can sell this whole domain. And then when it became clear that that wasn't happening and we were selling then to what is now the sale to Boohoo, that was only selling something that would ever live online. I think for me, it was about keeping my team focused on running the business. So anybody looking to buy it could see that we were still selling and we were still a top retailer through this period and that we could change and we could be agile. But then to actually sell it, I have to say I was incredibly proud that an online retailer bought the brand because Debenhams probably wouldn't have been the first thing you'd have thought of when you thought about online. But we became relevant to an online only retailer, which was a great outcome in the end. In many ways, it's given it another lease of life, hasn't it? It has. And actually, we might see many other high street retailers go the same way. I think it's a change that was always going to happen in retail. There is definitely a place for the right curated experience so you can touch it and feel it and experience it. But at the same time, people's lives have changed entirely now and therefore know your customer and know what they want. Businesses hate uncertainty, any kind of political unrest, any economic unrest, and the markets just go absolutely haywire. Businesses are predicated on being able to look ahead and take strategic decisions about things. What have you learned about managing and running a business through uncertain times? 
the biggest thing is it's not personal. When the change comes, and that means that you are either the only person involved or no longer involved, or you've got the budget, or you don't have the budget, or you have to drop that project that was so incredibly important to you, you've got to just move with the next potential certainty, which in this world at the moment and in the last couple of years has been only weeks away, not months away, not years away. You need to just not take it personally. You need to regroup and regather your thoughts and clarify your immediate next action very, very quickly in order to demonstrate that you have clarity of thought, process and vision to what the task is at hand when things are changing all the time. You can't constantly be talking to and hankering after the thing that was there before or now might never come. You have to be able to work and live in the moment and bring your team with you in the moment. That's such good advice. Good life advice, actually, as well. (laughs) Maybe. I was just talking to one of my colleagues. I learned a great phrase, which is about reframing. I think reframing is something that I do a lot. And it's like, okay, so the situation is no longer this. It's this new one. All that is is a reframe. I haven't changed the world hasn't changed. I still live in the same place. I've still got the same amount of disposable income. But the job I now need to do is X, reframe your capability into the picture that's now in that frame, not in the one that you saw before. I think you need a distinct level of resilience as well to achieve it. You and I first worked together many, many moons ago when you were at British Airways. Long time ago. The aviation business, there probably isn't another business which is subject to such change and trials and tribulations. I mean, now during COVID, but before, and I think during the brief period that we worked together, there was a pension crisis. There was the ash cloud. Remember the ash cloud? There was moving into T5 and there was baggage challenges. Was there a degree of uncertainty in that business that you learned to roll with? Everything affected the airline and on the basis of everything affecting it, it could be a catering strike, it could be an ash cloud, it could be anything and it would always delay a plane. For me, it's always been about the customer and whatever happens, just know that the customer is the person who ultimately is affected. And in that organisation, for us, it was always about ensuring that you listen to the customer. I had my entire team going down lists of executive club members doing personal call outs to say, look, we know it's been really disrupted. I recognise you're a really regular flyer. What can we do for you? And nine times out of 10, they were like, wow, you phoned me to say, I'm sorry, this is happening. We're trying to get in touch with it. I'm recognizing you as an important customer. Just realizing that it's not a customer's fault that it's happened, but the outcome for a customer could be quite devastating in terms of not getting to that meeting, not going on that holiday, that connection that they were trying to remake with somebody. I think as long as you keep the customer and the reason for their journey at the heart of it, there's people involved. It's not dissimilar to what you just said about yourself or someone working within an environment. The thing that doesn't change is the person. And Devon, if you said you bring it back to yourself, the frame around you changes, but you and what you can add remains the same. And it sounds like a similar thing, but it's focused on the customer, their needs, your knowledge of them, the things that they like, things that delight them and don't delight them are quite consistent. Well, certainly in the businesses that I've worked in, there is a human story at the heart of everything. Even when I was at Debenhams, one of my contact centre agents who'd worked in a store, who now just had a laptop at home, was chasing some suits that hadn't been delivered. 
those suits were for a wedding and that wedding had been pulled forward because the father was terminally ill and they'd been given special permission. She went beyond anything I could have ever asked her to do to get those suits to that customer. The humanity is the thing that we must never forget in and amongst all of the money and the logistics. There's people and there's heart and there are human beings in the middle of most stories. As long as you remember that, I think it's something that you can pull on. Do you think business is getting better or worse at that? Because things are speeding up. They just are in terms of the rate of change and the rate of digitization. And it feels like sometimes the human element is left behind or that consistent foundation of understanding people gets put to the side in a sort of race for innovation. Or is that an unfair observation? I would say it's unfair, but I think that's my take on it because I believe in it. If I end up working somewhere that people don't believe in it, then that's not somewhere I'm going to be very long. Take a look at the banking industry. They're all about human interaction. They're all about helping people who are probably less technically efficient get onto online banking. That's all about human connections. Even if they might be closing some branches down, they're recognizing that they need to still serve their customers. So that is a good example of innovation and cost cutting and moving to a modern world, but recognizing that they need to take customers with them. So I think you can do both. I think maybe where you're coming from, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is it that you see innovation and you see everybody talking to the point of human beings and the way people interact and caring and then actually not giving a toss? I think if you don't follow it through, that would be fair. But I think that in the past couple of years, having a conversation with somebody whilst their cat's walking across their keyboard, being in a boardroom in shorts and flip-flops... It's just made us all so much more human. Now, I don't think we can exist in this world forever. I think we need connection. I think we need collaboration. I think we need real physical touch points with people. But I do think that people can now see what's at the heart of most businesses. And that's the people who run them and the customers that they serve. If that's not what it's about, then you've got to ask yourself what you're in it for. I think in business, every problem's a people problem in the best possible way, as in most solutions are people-based solutions as well. I think the pandemic really brought that out for me because we almost took for granted that people could keep going and they're resilient and they could be creative all the time. And actually suddenly the environment changes and you realise people need to be supported and nurtured and looked after and motivated and all these very important things which sometimes get left aside. I think it drew our attention back to how vital it is to look after the people within a business. Yeah, and how much some of the trappings of business are just not what it's about. It's not about the marble lobby. It's not about the suit that you wear. My friend is a corporate lawyer and we had a good chuckle during the start of the great work from home experiment that some of the people that love the ego and they love the swagger and being in the office and the power are now just sitting behind a laptop on their own. Suddenly a little bit of that hot air has been taken out of the ego balloon. It's a great leveler when you work from home and you see into people's real lives because life happens around us. I think it's been something that whilst I accept entirely, it's been incredibly tough on some people, especially some young people whose formative parts of their education in their first couple of years at work, they've been doing them like this. They'll never be able to get those times back. But I think for other people, it's just given them the fire break that we possibly needed. 
and it's accelerated digital ways of working, understanding about mental health, and it's accelerated the breaking down of some of those old stuffy marble lobby egotistical barriers that were there before. A fire break is such a good phrase. Someone else I interviewed called it a break in series. Now's the chance to stop. It was a kind of forced pause, but a fire break is such a great way of talking about it. Talking about the personal aspect of it, I'd love to get your reflections on your career because you were at BA for 16 years, which is such a long period of time in an era where people move jobs so much. And then you decided to go and to rebuild your marketing knowledge in a different place. What precipitated that decision and how was that for you? I came to realisation that I wasn't learning anything anymore. And I think that had to do with being in the same industry, which had many problems, but it was like just another crisis and it was very seasonal and we'd been through set innovation, we'd been through the Olympics. There'd been some massive highs and some massive lows. So I felt like I had done that. And then culturally, I think it comes with maturity, should we say. <laughs> I've got some years now. This is going to sound like such a buzzword, but I didn't feel I could be my true authentic self. I didn't feel the culture served my values. And I thought, you know what? If I can't be the real me and I'm not learning anything, it's time to go. What did that realisation look like? Because we often talk to people who are at a sort of career crossroads or, as you know, I've just left my big corporate job for four years and people are quite bad. Humans are quite bad at recognising what they want, although we can sort of tune into what makes us happy in smaller chunks. So what did that realisation look like for you? What made you think, hold on a minute... I am going to be better served being somewhere else. There was one pivotal meeting where it was just awful, absolutely awful. I was being yelled at at the time. I just stayed entirely silent because I was actually in such shock at what was happening in the room. I was like, goodness me, I didn't even defend myself because I was just tired. And I thought, I'm done. I'm done. I'm not going to stand here and defend my position because it's not worth it. Because of the way you're presenting yourself, the person who's talking to me at the time, you are never going to see two sides to this argument. It was entirely unwarranted behaviour. And I thought, I deserve better than this. I certainly deserve a reasonable conversation. It wasn't about fairness. It was about appropriateness of behaviour between two individuals, never mind in a professional workplace. And that's when I went, if I'm not fighting back, then I've lost my fight. I've lost my mojo. For anybody who knows me properly, I'm not glass half full. I am glass overfloweth. You know, in my approach to life, I'm very positive. I always do the good. And like I said before, if it's not right, then I reframe it. I put myself in the other person's shoes. I just felt like I'd lost a bit of me. So I think in losing a bit of me, I was reclaiming myself. My husband, the day I went home, I went, I've decided to go. He went, well, today's the day I get my wife back. And I was like, wow, did that happen? Did he feel like he just lost me to this abyss of, you know, corporate life? Sometimes people around us notice sooner than we do, but we have to come to it in our own time. It's so freeing, leaving a big organisation I felt like these invisible shackles had been removed and I felt totally empowered to be whatever I wanted to be, which is mainly just myself, quite happy with that, 
do whatever I wanted to do because I didn't have to prove anything. I didn't have to sustain anything. I could go at it fresh every time and keep learning and keep making mistakes and keep learning again and yeah, just keep going. Did you reprioritize in any way when you left? Because you say it's a huge, big tranche of your life in a particular environment. I talked to someone recently who was saying he left the corporate world and he realized that what he valued above all was his time. So he now runs his own business because it was a realization that actually being in control of his time and having free time was hugely important for him. When you left BA and you went to look for the next thing, what were you looking for I thought I was looking for another big brand. I thought coming from a big brand, I needed another big brand. And I absolutely didn't need that. But what I didn't think I needed was the big team and the size and the scale. I thought I could do small. And I found then that I couldn't do just me and a couple of other people. I need a team to lead. I think I knew some of it and I didn't know the other part of it. I needed to be in the buzz. I needed to be in the thick of it. I needed to feel like I had some purpose. But I didn't know what my purpose was when I didn't have a role because I really saw my purpose as being a creator, be that a creator of an environment, creator of a future, creator of belief in people. I didn't realize just how much the leadership of others, of projects, of programs, of businesses gave me purpose. I don't have any children And whilst I'm incredibly happy with the freedom that that gives me and running off to the theatre and on holiday and things like that, I realised that actually my work purpose defined how I felt about me quite a lot because that was what I gave. I didn't have the giving that other people get from maybe being a parent. I hadn't realised that. So when I wasn't working, I was a bit rudderless. You've talked about purpose a lot before, and I've read interviews with you about it. How has your understanding of your purpose as it relates to work evolved from BA through roles to Debenhams to where you are now? I think as I was growing through my career and realising, of course, that that was all through the years at BA, I had honed who I was to fit the environment and what it needed to be to succeed. Having left there... I come in a lot more relaxed, a lot more of a collaborator. And I don't know whether that's because of my age. You learn, you learn as you grow because you have more life experience or whether that was the environment that had shaped me in its shape. But I think that I have come into other roles since then very much more as me. I've had two people in my life that I hold up as the most fabulous leaders in my previous roles. Catherine Witten, who was at Barclays and Specsavers, and Frank van der Post, who was Jumeirah before he was BA, now is in the States. I remember the first time I ever met Catherine and she talked about her partner and her dog. And I was like, she's talked about her dog before she's talked about the purpose of what we're all here to do, which is to drive shareholder return. I just felt like I knew her. I knew all of her before anything else. Then in Frank's case, he was not a marketeer, but he had the presence and the capability to open the door to then let me walk through and take the stage. I just knew he was there to catch us if we fell. And just knowing there's that net there is amazing. And with Catherine, knowing who she was and just knowing what was really important to her in her life made her a person I could connect with. And therefore, I felt completely trusted and supported from the tiniest little touches. You see leaders 
give you that guiding light in the smallest of touches. And if I can be half the leader that I felt they were to me, to people who've ever worked for me, then that light will keep shining for them as they grow in their careers. But it comes back to people, doesn't it? Those businesses have all made plenty of money. And the thing is, I'm talking about is the people that are at the heart of them. Yeah. What advice do you have for other people who are within a business at the moment that is undergoing disruption? Yeah, I mean, who isn't undergoing disruption? Maybe just disruption of the way we work as opposed to the business you're in. The disruption could be massive growth for some companies. It's still disruption against their plan and they've got to deliver against it. I think that the great resignation, did we call it? when people? Yes, I think we're still calling it the great resignation. We're still calling it the great resignation. That has been a lot of people just going, oh my goodness, I'm just holding up a mirror to myself because look at what's actually possible when you're forced into it homeschooling, working from home, changing location. Everybody's just taken a step back. Now, I think I probably took that step and that hard look a number of years ago when I left British Airways after a long career there. I think lots of people have been forced to take that long, hard look at life, given the, let's call them the opportunities that have been thrown at us. I'd always say, put yourself in the other person's shoes. That other person might be the person who's struggling. That person might be the customer. That person might be the person you really don't get on with, see it from their perspective. I think people can either dig in and be incredibly collaborative in times of disruption and change. And I have found myself being very lucky having gone through the year at Debenhams with my colleagues there. And I have seen other organisations become utterly toxic when the chips are down. I think you've just got to take a long, hard look at yourself and be the best version of yourself and genuinely question whether it serves you. If it doesn't serve you and this disruption is something that you can't engage with and flourish with and really learn from and grow and enjoy that, if the disruption disturbs you, check it, reframe it, try and put yourself in other people's shoes just so you can just get your head around it. And if you can't get your head around it, ask yourself the big question of whether that's right for you for the longer term. You know, and there are practical implications if people have got bills to pay. But I also think that people stick things out when they can't hack it. Mm. And it doesn't have to be about the amount of disruption we've got here and now. That can just be change. People either love change or hate change. I think change is the only thing that's steady at the moment. And maybe even speeding up, actually. Yeah. So get used to change and find your way of dealing with it. And if you can't deal with it in the environment and the culture that you're in, then know that you can deal with change, but know that it's the culture that doesn't support the way you are and move. Mm. It's such an empowering message, actually, because I think you're right. As humans, we do tend to stick with things. And sometimes environments change. It might be a relationship, it might be a business, it might be a job, it might be anything. You know, it's a sort of boiling a frog where you stay with something, and even though actually it might not be serving you anymore. And I think the fire break of COVID did allow many people to say, actually, do you know what? This change has been such a seismic change, it's caused me to reevaluate. I think the idea that it's not about quitting, it's actually about being empowered to say, 
this served me and it doesn't serve me anymore because it's changed, I've changed, life has changed and therefore I'm going to go and find an environment which serves me better and it's such a positive way of looking at it. Yeah, you know, the amount of people who've made those changes, this kind of recalibration of their lives has been forced upon them. If anybody's listening to this and they have made the change, I would say, ask yourself, if it wasn't for COVID and everything that made you reevaluate, would you have done it yourself? Would you have stopped and taken a look and gone, oof, this doesn't feel quite right and I really want to do that? You've taken this as an opportunity, but it really has been forced upon us. You know, in the same way as businesses, oh, we need to replatform this website. Oh, that's going to take six years to do. Yeah, three months later. <laughs> There'll be robots in six exactly, years. Exactly. You can do it. It needs focus and it needs precision and it needs clarity of the role. And if we can't have that for ourselves and our own lives, for our own dreams, somebody said to me the other day oh who writes those lists at the beginning of a year of things they're going to do and I bet none of you have done any of them and I'm sat there going I've got five points they're on the fridge I've ticked four of them and I will do the other one before the end of the year what are you talking about oh it's such a lovely positive note to end on thank you so much it's so nice to talk to you because I don't know if it's a post-holiday glow <laughs> you seem so relaxed and contented in yourself can I say life doesn't stress me out anymore. It really doesn't. I think the thing is, when you've been in a job, a role, a career, especially with the same organisation for a very long time, you will know this, it holds you to something and it's invisible. And it's only when that's gone that you realise it never existed. And you were as free then as you are now, but you never took that freedom for yourself. Everybody at some point is going to lose their job, get made redundant, be restructured, have to get rid of other people. I mean, oh my goodness, making people redundant over Zoom in Debenhams. I did it, held myself together for the first five minutes, and then I cried through the next 20. But you know what? I stuck it out. Yeah. And when you've been through that, just relax and ask yourself, are you enjoying it? <laughs> and if you're not, change it. You have been listening to The Rebuilders, hosted by me, Sarah Tate, in conversation with Abigail Comber. Thank you for listening. And if you want to hear more, then please do subscribe to the series and check out the forthcoming book, The Rebuilders, now available to pre-order on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. Join me again in two weeks' time to hear from the excellent Jane Evans, author of Invisible to Invaluable, Unleashing the Power of Midlife Women, when we discuss both the freedom and the challenges of rebuilding in midlife.